The psalm that Brian read this morning challenged us to be thankful people. So let me ask you, what are you thankful for this morning? When, when you're spending time in prayer, what things are you thankful for? What do you praise God for when you, you pray? Frequently, I know we do praise God. I've listened to many of your prayers many times, and, and we praise God, but frequently that praise is for personal blessings we, that God brings into our lives. We, we praise, praise God for health that, that he gives us. We, we praise God for financial provisions that, that he's given to us. We, we praise him for our families. We, we praise him for our food. We, every mealtime, right? We praise God that he's given us food on the table before us. We, we, really, we praise God for the things that are important to us. And none of these things that I just listed are wrong. I mean, we ought to be praising God for these personal blessings, but is personal blessings the most important thing to us? As we'll see this morning, God deserves praise for more than what he gives us. I'm not saying we quit praising him for what he gives us, but God deserves praise for more than what he gives us. This morning we're going to begin a series that will probably run throughout the summer into the early fall through the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. It's the letter of Colossians. As we begin this series, I want us to observe that this letter is a little bit unusual as far as Paul's letters go. Colossians is part of a set of letters that usually are called the prison epistles. That, that's because Paul wrote them while he was imprisoned at Rome. And, and then they have common theme because of that time frame in his life and, and topics. Unlike the other two letters that make up this group of, of three, that are the main prison epistles, the prison letters, the other two main ones are, are Ephesians and Philippians. Paul wrote Colossians here, this letter we're looking at, to a local church that he had not personally started. He'd started the church in Ephesus. He'd started the church in, in Philippi, but he had not started the church in Colossae. In fact, the appearance that we have as we read through the, the letter, the, the impression that we get is Paul had not even visited the city of Colossae or that church at some point. He most likely had visited the city because it's almost impossible for Paul to have traveled some of the places he traveled without taking the road that went through Colossae. But the indication is he's never actually visited this church. Still, that doesn't mean that, that Paul was unconnected to the church. The church was likely started by a close friend of Paul's. Paul spent a lot of time in nearby Ephesus. And, and it seems like maybe it was even a disciple of Paul's, a man by the name of Epaphras, who started this church. Two things appear to be the, the things that prompt Paul to write this letter. The, the one we're looking at here, the, the, what we call the book of Colossians, the letter of Colossians, two things seem to have prompted him. One, he wrote because Epaphras, the, this man who, who started the church, had traveled to Rome and, and was ministering to Paul during his imprisonment. While he was there, Epaphras informed Paul that there were some problems in the church in Corinth. And, and he actually was, uh, appears to be seeking Paul's advice on how should I address some of these problems in my church back home. A lot of these problems came because there were people in the church that were being taken in by, by false teaching. They were being deceived, and, and their deception was endangering the work of the gospel throughout the city and the entire region. Paul writes this letter to address some of these problems directly. 
Epaphras asked Paul, how should I address the lad, the, these issues? And basically Paul seems to say, I'm going to write and I'll, I'll address them. The, the second reason Paul wrote the letter appears to be simple opportunity. It, it wasn't easy to get letters from point A to point B in, in the Roman world. You had to find somebody to carry them. And Paul has an opportunity to carry this letter, to have someone carry this letter along with a couple other letters they write at the same time along with a man named Tychicus, who is traveling back to this region. We have one of the other letters that Tychicus carried when he went back. It's the letter to Philemon. Philemon was asked to take a runaway slave back in Onesimus. And Onesimus is actually traveling with Tychicus to the city of Colossae, where Philemon is part of the church in Colossians, or in Colossae. And Paul instructs him to take his slave back. So we have that letter. We have the letter of Philemon. We also can see from our letter that Paul wrote at the same time a letter to the church in Laodicea. Well, we don't have that letter. That, that letter is mentioned in ours, but God has not preserved it for us. So we know Tychicus carried at least three letters. Paul had opportunity here to send letters back, and he does that. Well, this morning we're going to start looking at one of those letters, this letter of Colossians. And we're going to just consider the first eight verses of this letter today, as you can see on the screen. Paul typically begins his letters sharing what he is praying for people and what he is giving thanks for. We can learn a lot about how our thanksgiving should flow by just looking how Paul starts his letters when he talks about, I give thanks for, and then we can start seeing what fills in the blank. At the same time, when Paul starts his letters, Paul inevitably takes the opportunity to, to set a framework from which he will deal with a lot of the issues that he's going to address later in the, the letter. Well, this letter is no different. This letter to the church of Colossians, Paul does both of these things. He, he tells them what he's giving thanks for, but he also shapes what he's going to be addressing as he starts dealing with the issues. Today, we're largely going to focus on the thanksgiving aspect of things. Both things are in these verses, but we'll have plenty of time to consider the issues when, when Paul gets around dealing with them directly. And from time to time, I'll probably point out, as Paul laid out at the beginning, he just gives hints, here's the proper way of thinking. Now, by the way, you're thinking wrong, and he'll deal with wrong thinking later. So we'll talk about those later on. This morning, I want to focus on the thanksgiving, things he's thankful for, and the truth that I want us to see, as we start out this series, is that God deserves our praise because the gospel transforms people. The gospel transforms people. It doesn't just do things for people. God is not just here doing things for us, giving us our food so that we can enjoy a good meal or, or giving us health so that we can enjoy health. Yes, he's doing all that and we praise him for that, but... We should praise God because the gospel transforms people. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the work of Christ, what he has done. As Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And folks, salvation transforms people. This morning, I want to see four things that, that gospel trans, 
transformation produces in people. You can think of it as displays of the transforming work of the gospel, evidence that, that the gospel transformation is underway. Four things for which God deserves our praise because the gospel transforms people. Let's start this morning as we normally do just by, by reading our, tac- or our text together. The first eight verses of the letter to, Col- to the Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to all the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned of it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit." We see here from the outset that that Paul is not alone. There's others with him. Looks like that water's been used. I'm not going to use it. I found a new one here. My my throat's scratchy. We we see that, that Paul has someone with him here, Timothy. And Timothy, we know, is frequently a traveling companion of Paul. But Paul is the apostle. He's the one appointed as a special delegate of Jesus Christ. He, he tells us it was not by his choice. It wasn't by his education. It wasn't by anything except the will of God. God called him to this unique ministry. So even though Timothy's listed in verse 1, even though Timothy's included in the thanksgiving that we read, we, we see that plural we, that means Paul, Timothy, and I, uh, the two of us together. Even though Timothy's included there, Paul is the author of the letter. In fact, after we see one final, word, um, final we in verse 9, Paul says one more time, uh, we in verse 9, after that it's all I. Paul is the one addressing. As he moves into the issues, Paul the apostle will speak. He, he's the, the one who writes. And what he's writing here is that God deserves our praise because the gospel transforms people. I said there's four things that we can observe in the text here that the gospel produces in people, displays evidence of of this transforming work. Well, the first is that gospel transformation produces faith in Christ. The first thing it does, number one, is it produces faith in Christ. That's the fundamental transformation produced by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the initial thing which moved Paul to praise God. God had transformed people by bringing faith into their life. Faith in Christ. Paul heard that the Colossians had gained faith in Christ through the gospel. I know I've said this before. After the number of years I've been preaching, I've said a lot of things, but things bear repeating. Scripture repeats. There is no genuine saving faith without the content of the gospel. We have to understand that. It it drives me crazy at times listening to interviews of Hollywood personalities as an example. 
It's not at all unusual to hear celebrities talking about their faith. They, they may describe the faith journey that they're on. They, they may refer to how adversity is increasing their faith. They, they talk about the, the comfort that their faith gives them, the, the peace that their faith brings. They talk a lot about their faith. But sadly, there's usually no gospel content to their faith. Their, their faith is in themselves, really, and their ability to overcome whatever they're facing. Their faith is in the support of their friends or family that they've experienced. Their, their faith is sometimes in some mystical sensation they had. What their faith is not in is the finished work of Jesus Christ. And any faith apart from the finished worth of Christ is not gospel faith. It's not saving faith. It is not transforming faith. Rather, it is faith that is in some nebulous thing described as a source of power to somehow change oneself. That really is eternally damning faith. And we need to keep this clear. Faith is a product of gospel transformation. Faith results from the power of the gospel. Faith results from the Holy Spirit applying the work of Jesus Christ to our lives. We are transformed by the gospel and faith is produced. Belief in Jesus Christ is the first demonstration of the transforming work that God does in our lives through the gospel as the Spirit comes and gives us spiritual life yielding faith. That, that means two things for us, two things. One, it means for all of us that have saving faith, for all of us, there was a moment before which we had faith. There was a moment when we did not have faith. There was a time when we did not believe the gospel message. None of us are born with faith. I've had people tell me that they were born with it. I ask, when did you come faith in Christ? Well, I was born that way. I've always believed in, in Jesus. No, you did not. The moment we believe in Jesus is the moment we're saved. Before that moment, we did not believe in Jesus Christ. Not as Savior. We may have known of Jesus. We may have been able to state some facts about Jesus. But until that moment, we did not believe. After that moment, we do believe. That's the moment faith is produced. Now the reality is, we may be unaware of that precise moment. We may not know when that hits. Sometimes salvation is a process rather than a momentous event. God works in us slowly and, and there is a time as we're understanding the gospel and, and it's destroying the, the fortress of our rebellion that makes up our life and, and God is replacing it with understanding. So we may not be aware of the moment when we actually come to that moment of, you know, I do believe in Jesus. It may sneak up on us. It may take a while for us to recognize that God has completed the process. But we can look back and say, I do believe why well, I did not used to believe. But not noticing when it happened does not change the fact that it did happen. Gospel transformation produces faith. Now, unless we're able to point to that transformation in our life, we can point to the faith that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ now, 
unless we can point that, we have no reason to trust in our own salvation. Faith is the evidence of salvation. It is a product that's produced. And unless our lives show this evidence, it doesn't matter if there's a time we point to say, I prayed a prayer, I ask God to forgive me. Unless we actually believe in God now, we believe in Jesus Christ now, we have evidence of faith now, there's no reason to believe we're saved. Secondly, the gospel transformation produces faith, notice, in Christ. That's what Paul says. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ. The gospel has an object of faith. There has to be an object. It's the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel produces faith that is not a nebulous thing. It is belief in specific things, specifically a specific person. Belief in the person of Jesus Christ, believing who he is and trusting in what he has done. So unless you believe in Christ, believe that he is the Son of God and the Son of Man, fully God and fully man, unless you believe that he sacrifices his sinless life to to pay for your sin penalty, unless you believe that, you have no faith from the gospel transformation. Rather, as I said, you have some eternally damning substitute. We need to understand this. Because we live with people who, we are surrounded by people who are believing eternally damning substitute because their faith does not have the content of Jesus Christ. There's confusion about faith. But gospel transformation produces faith in Christ. That is the first evidence of gospel transformation. Remember, God deserves our praise because the gospel transforms people. Are you praising God that you have faith in your life? That the gospel has transformed you so that you now have faith? Are you praising God because there's other people he is transforming because they've come to faith in Christ? In other words, are you praising God that people are being saved? Faith in Christ is the first product of gospel transformation. The the second thing we observe in our text is that gospel transformation produces love for other believers. Love for other believers. We we see that right after faith there in verse 4. We heard of your faith in Christ and we heard of the love which you have for all the saints. This product that Paul is is praising God for is right there in the second half of the verse, right after the praise for faith in Christ. And and there's an obvious connection between the two. There's faith in Christ and there's love for others. Faith in Christ produces a a life-sharing union with Christ, the union that, that we celebrate monthly when we partake of the Lord's table together. We are celebrating that we are united to Christ. And as I mentioned almost every month, that Spiritual union with Christ creates a spiritual connection to others who are united to Christ as well. We become family. We are spiritually brothers and sisters in Christ. That spiritual bond 
between us and Christ becomes a vibrant bond between one another as well. And we reflect this fact that, that, that we don't partake of the Lord's table privately. We don't do it in our homes. We do it together because we share a love for one another and a common love for Christ. We don't have Christ alone. We have Christ together. And for that reason, we have a love for one another. Now, I have no idea how many of you have told me that the hymn, In the Garden, is your favorite hymn. I know several of you have, and for that reason, I know I'm going to get myself in trouble in the next couple of minutes. But sometimes trouble is necessary. I'm sorry, but this hymn is one that I refuse to have us allowed to sing in our worship service. Most of the theology in the hymn is weak, to, to say the least. Some of it is wrong. But the reason I refuse to sing this song in our worship service is the song is unloving. I'm assuming most of you know the song. If not, the song talks about a private meeting that we have with Jesus in the garden and, and that we are hearing his voice in a special way. Well, that alone should give us the willies. If we believe that God's revelation is complete with the Bible, that there's not ongoing revelation now, he's not speaking now, it should give us the willies to sing about hearing of him privately in some way. God speaks through his word. His revelation is ended. We have his word. Yet, yet that's not the part that bothers me the most in, in the song. What bothers me the most is the final two lines. The final two lines of the chorus. The chorus, remember, you sing over and over. So we sing these final two lines over and over if we sing the song. And it says, and the joy we, and the we is not us together. In the song, the joy is Jesus and I. The joy we share as we tarry there in the garden, none other has ever known. That is both wrong and unloving. The, the song is saying that I have something unique with Jesus, something that no one else can possibly have. And I'm going to stand here, and I'm going to sing about my personal spiritual victory while you stand next to me sing about your personal spiritual victory and tell me I'm wrong and you're right. And we argue that I have something that you don't. No, I have it. You don't. That's really what the song is doing. We gather for worship. When we gather for worship, we're celebrating what we share. There's nothing unique about my salvation. It's what I share with all my brothers and sisters in Christ. The bond I have with Christ is what brings us together. Paul says gospel transformation produces love for other believers. He uses the, the common word for love here, agape. Love that, that seeks the good of the object of our love. We want what is best for the person we love. Real gospel transformation means that we will actively seek the good of other believers. In fact, Paul says, love for all the saints. You don't have to know a lot of Greek to understand all the saints mean all the saints. Every other believer in Jesus Christ. There's no limitation here. If someone has a union with Christ, we love them. And that means we want good for them. 
A few minutes ago, I mentioned that, that we can look for evidence of faith in our lives, and, and the evidence shows gospel transformation occurring. Well, we can do the same thing with love. We can look for love in our lives, and it will show us gospel transformation. But I do want us to be cautious a little bit about this one. Love is certainly evidence of gospel transformation, but it must be love that is unnatural. It must be love that is uniquely for all the saints. Let me give an example. I do loving things for Grace, my wife. I do loving things for Katie, my daughter, David, my son-in-law, Finley and Kira, my granddaughters. I do loving things. And the transforming work of the gospel in my life likely plays a part in my love. Still, I have to recognize because of God's common grace, many unsaved people will do the same kind of loving things for their family members. God's common grace allows unbelievers to do good things at times. Gospel transformation is most evident when, when love shows up in actions toward people where the only thing I have in common with that person is Christ. Christ. That's one of the reasons that, that we don't actually have our Sunday schools arranged around demographics. Things, it is comfortable for people to, to have classes and gatherings and groups around people that they share a lot in common with. But how about celebrating that all we have is Christ? That's what's unique to the church. That's what's unique to us as believers. That's what gives evidence of the transforming work of the gospel in our lives. Christ and Christ alone. Why are you interacting with that person? You have nothing in common with that person. Yes, I do. I have Christ. We may be different ages. We may be different ethnicities. We may be different genders. We may be different social status. We may be different in every way possible. We may not be able to find a, a single hobby we enjoy together. A single activity that we would like to do aside from gathering to worship and learn about Christ. That shows evidence of gospel transformation. When I start going out of my way to do something for this person that I share Christ with alone. So yes, the second evidence is love for all the saints. God deserves our praise because the gospel transformed people. Can you point to this love on display in your life? If so, it is something you should praise God for. Gospel transformation produces love for other believers. That's the second result. Let's move on to number three. Gospel transformation, thirdly, produces hope for our future. Hope for our future. Paul's praising God here. He's praising God that the members of the Colossians church, they've, they've made great spiritual progress in their lives. He, he sees evidence of this in their faith and their love. Remember, this is a church with problems. He's going to deal with problems. But before that, he's praising God that there's evidence of gospel transformation. And part of that evidence, he recognizes in verse 4, part of the reason for their progress, part of their, their development in, in their spiritual growth is because the gospel has created hope for their future. Hope that he says is laid away for them in heaven. 
This hope is, is another evidence of gospel transformation in action. They possess hope because of the gospel that they've heard. Uh, of course, this is the beginning of the letter, so Paul doesn't really expand on, on what this future hope is at this point. Still, we, we can anticipate having this evidence in our lives as well, and I want to make sure that, that we understand what Paul means by hope at this point so that we can anticipate and evaluate, do we show this evidence of gospel transformation? And showing it, are we praising God for it? So let's understand it. First, hope is not a wish. I'm sure most of us understand that. Hope is not a wish. It's a sure confidence. It's a certainty of the future. It's, it's a certainty of the future that's stored away. We, we lock it away for a future event. Now, when we have something important, we tend to, to store it in a secure location, don't we? In, in my house, for example, I have a fireproof box in the basement that Grace and I put important papers into. This box is supposed to be able to preserve the papers inside if the house has a fire. Yet there are some things that are more important than the kinds of paper that we put in that box. So for those items, we have a safety deposit box in the bank. That's in a big vault, and that vault is supposedly supposed to be fireproofed as well, but beyond that, it's supposed to be theft-proofed, or at least very difficult to steal, much harder than getting the box out of my basement would be. It also should be able to stand up to an earthquake or even a small bomb. You know, it's supposed to be well-protected. Well, certainly... Our future that God gives us through the gospel is infinitely more valuable, but it's also in an infinitely more secure location. Paul says it is stored in heaven. It's laid away in heaven. In other words, we know heaven is our future destiny. This future hope that we have, this, this thing, that this confidence we have, it is stored in heaven. We will claim it when we get there. Second, this hope, this aspect of gospel transformation, it allows us to face the trials of this life with confidence. We talked about this in my lament class. There, there's no problem that arrives. There's no hardship that we can encounter. There's nothing that can happen that can affect our future hope in any way. That's the joy that comes when we celebrate the passing of a believer like we did this week with Bill Borton. We can celebrate that the, his future hope is now his present reality because it was laid away in heaven and nothing that happened in this life, not even death, affects that. Third, the future hope that, that the gospel transformation generates here, it should prompt our Christian behavior now. We seek to serve Christ we seek to live in ways that please Christ. We seek to promote Christ because we know that we will spend eternity with Christ. What we believe about the future will impact what we do today. Do you have an impact on your life because of your future hope? If so, praise God for it. Praise God that he's given you confidence in your future. And that confidence is affecting you now. God deserves our praise because the gospel transforms people. Gospel transformation produces our hope. That's the third evidence. Fourthly, gospel transformation produces evangelistic growth. 
evangelistic growth. Look at verse 6. Paul says, wherever the gospel goes in all the world, it constantly bears fruit. In other words, looping back to the first idea, the gospel generates new life. It's constantly saving people. And having borne fruit, then Paul goes on and says, and it also increases. Increasing there is talking about outward growth of the gospel. He, he's not talking about what we would call sanctification. He's not describing here becoming more like Christ. He's talking about evangelistic growth, what we would call it, evangelism, going out and, and the gospel spreading and new churches being formed, more people coming to know Christ. The underlying point that Paul is making is that not only is gospel transformation unique to the Colossians individually, it's not unique to them. It's not even unique to their church. What the gospel is doing in Colossae, the gospel does everywhere the gospel goes. What it does is transforms lives. It produces expansion, evangelistic growth. This is an important foundational point for the church in Colossae. Very important for them to understand everywhere the gospel goes, it continues to expand outwardly further. Paul will deal with several issues in the church, but, but the common thread that all of these issues in the church have is that the people were looking for something new. Something more exciting than the simple gospel message. They had received the gospel, but they wanted something more. Yet it's the gospel that transforms. The gospel from beginning to end is what transforms people. It's the gospel from beginning to end that communicates the grace of God. It's the gospel that communicates the grace of God to them and it communicates the grace of God to others who need to hear about the grace of God as well. It's the gospel that, that will cause them to expand outward to other points in the world. Just as the outward of expanse of the gospel brought it to their city in the first place, nothing new is required. This is a lesson that we need to learn as well. Many of you have probably heard of the events in the past few weeks happening in Asbury University in Kentucky. If not, go on the internet and you'll find it all over. Reportedly, a revival has broken out on campus. Now, whether that is the case or not, I don't know. We, we can certainly hope that is the case. We can hope that God is moving in a powerful way on the campus of Asbury. I also would suggest that, that we should remain cautious about too quickly affirming that this is a genuine revival. We, we know that Satan likes to masquerade as an angel of light. And Satan loves to sow confusion when it comes to the gospel message. Calling things genuine revivals that have nothing to do with genuine work of God, that's one of the tricks that Satan has used throughout history to create confusion about what the gospel is. What I can say is, if it is a genuine revival, time will show such, because lives will be transformed. And the gospel message will spread outward. It's too early to tell if such is incurring. At, the, at this point, we should be praying that is the case. By contrast, there is one thing that is occurring that I can say definitively is wrong over the last two week or two. 
And what is wrong is that many people have flocked to Asbury College because they want to be part of, in their words, something the Spirit is doing. This is wrong thinking. I don't have to know what's going on in Asbury to know that this is wrong confusion. One thing, for one thing, the Spirit never draws attention to himself. The Spirit always draws attention to Christ. And secondly, the, the Spirit, as Paul reminds the Colossians here, is at work in all the world through the gospel. We do not have to go anywhere to be part of the Spirit's activity. Rather, every time we share the gospel with an unsaved person, we are part of the Spirit's activity. The Spirit is just as present here in Sterling Heights as He is in Asbury University or any other part of the world. Now, I do recognize that at times the, the Spirit chooses to impact people with the gospel message in a unique manner. There, there are times in, in history and in places where, where the Spirit causes more people to respond to the gospel at that point in time and place than He does at other times. After all, it's the Spirit who draws people to salvation. And that is, I understand as well, what we usually mean when we say the word revival. To be part of any of that does not necessitate, though, that we go to a place where the Spirit has done that. Rather, it necessitates that we pray that the Spirit will do that where we're at and then diligently share the gospel message. That is how we participate in revival. The genuine revivals that we can point to in the history of have rapidly spread because people have shared the gospel everywhere they went. The main component of genuine revival seems to be a unique burden that the Spirit places on everyday Christians to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with everyone they meet. You want to be part of revival? You want to see revival? Share the gospel. Share the gospel. In fact, Paul is writing our letter here to a church that came into existence in what we would call the greatest revival the world has ever seen. In a few decades of the New Testament era, the, the gospel message of Jesus Christ moved from Jerusalem all the way to, to, to Rome and filled in cities all the way in between because believers went out with such vigor telling the gospel to everyone they met that churches popped up all over the known world. That's revival. Colossae was simply one of those locations. The problems arose as these new churches began looking for more, something new, additional message. And in doing so, they set aside the transforming message of the gospel. Do we want revival? Then we need to share the gospel message with the people around us. We don't need to look for something that's more exciting. In fact, one of the greatest types of evidence that, that we have of, of the gospel transformation in our own lives and in our church is the evidence of evangelistic growth. If we're not seeing that evidence, if we're not seeing people coming to knowledge of Jesus Christ, coming to salvation, then we're not experiencing gospel transformation as we ought. In other words, if you are not feeling the burden to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the people he's put in your life, then you're missing some of the gospel transforming evidence that you should be looking for. At the same time, anywhere we see 
evangelistic growth, we should certainly praise God. As we learn that evangelistic growth flows out of Asbury, we can praise God. As we hear that evangelistic growth is flowing out of the preaching of our missionaries, we can praise God. As we see evangelistic growth flow out of our church family, we can praise God. God deserves our praise because the gospel transforms people. Fourthly, gospel transformation produces evangelistic growth. At the outset, I asked you, what are you praising God for in your life? This morning, as we begin this series through Colossians, we see that God deserves praise for much more than what He does for us. He deserves praise because the gospel transforms people. And everywhere we see that transformation, God deserves praise for that. In the first eight verses, we've seen four products. Things that the gospel-transforming work produces in, in lives. And God deserves His praise for each one of these. First, we see that it produces faith in Jesus Christ. Gospel transformation produces faith in Jesus Christ. When we see that faith, praise God for it. Second, gospel transformation produces love for other believers. When we see love for other believers within our life and the lives of others within our church, praise God for that love. Thirdly, gospel transformation produces hope for our future. Praise God for the hope He gives us in our future. Hope that is laid up in eternity so that nothing in this world can shake it. And then fourthly, gospel transformation produces evangelistic growth. Praise God for the evangelistic spread of the gospel because that is where the transforming power of God lies. God deserves our praise because the gospel transforms people. Let's pray. God, what a glorious, wonderful, powerful God you are. And what a gracious, loving God you are to have given us the gospel message of Jesus Christ that points to the glorious person of Jesus Christ. Father, you have not only given us a message, you have given us a Savior. One who died for us. The message is simply proclaiming that finished work. And as we take that message in upon ourselves, you transform us. As we continue to communicate that message to one another, you change us collectively. And as we share that message of the glorious person of Jesus Christ, you change others. Father, the message of Christ transforms people because it is Christ working in people. Through the power of his Spirit working in us all. We praise you for the Holy Spirit doing the work of applying the work of Christ and the, the understanding of Christ to lives so that lives are transformed by the gospel message. Father, I pray that you would help us to be faithful proclaimers of the gospel. May we not be seeking anything beyond what you've given us in Christ. Use this study in our lives. Father, use this study in our church so that Christ will be magnified. 
For it's in his name we pray. Amen.